together if you want to just make known to the Lord tonight say Lord come by my way you want to raise your hand to him and just set all else aside and say Lord I'm here to worship you Lord and I'm in awe of you Lord what you've done in my life how you've saved me Lord how you've kept me by the blood of Jesus Christ Lord there's many times I would have slipped away but you kept me Lord I'm in awe of you tonight and I pray you come by my way. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, my own hands raised up to you, Lord. For Father, without you, Lord, we would be lost. Just walking the way, Lord, in this Satan's Eden, Lord, not knowing where we were going, Lord. But Father, you have us on a set path, Lord. You watch over our steps, Lord. You appoint them, Father. You know exactly where we're at, Lord Jesus, and you're drawing us home. Father, we ask tonight, Lord, you come. Help us to take another step, Lord. Just woo us and draw us closer into your presence, Lord. As I lay myself aside, I'm just nervous, Lord. But Father, you're the one that's in control, Lord. So Father, I ask you come and have the preeminence, Lord. Take every aspect now, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you to the musicians. Let's take our Bibles together. Turn to the book of 1 John, 1 John, if you would, 1 John chapter 2. Amen. Sure appreciated the service this morning. It really was what I needed and 
encouragement I needed, and it was wonderful. Amen. And unless the Lord leads differently tonight, Brother Ed, we're going to not use Hebrews chapter 2. Though I do love that scripture, it really is very precious to me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14 says, I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. And I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abideth in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Little children, it is the, la- it is the last time, as th- and as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. We're living in the last time. And there has been many Antichrists go before, and there's many still going on. But there is a true. Because there's a false, it points to the fact that there is a true. Amen. And it, he goes on to, to speak it this way, and he says, They went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Amen. Amen. Why don't you have your seats tonight if you'd like. I want to continue on this week from a couple weeks ago in footsteps. We'll call it footsteps part two. But I also want to use a subtitle and maybe a different subtitle, but it's just how the Lord laid it on my heart called the fog of war. The fog of war. And I want to just take it and I happen to use a different picture from a, provided by a sister in our church that I really liked. If you don't know what that lake is, you need to get out to the mountains more often. Amen. And I won't say what it is, but it's just, it was a picture that struck me as, I, as they were sending pictures on their status. And it was, this lake is such a beautiful lake up in Banff area. And it's such a beautiful place where the, the sun shines through and the mountains are. But here they had in this picture, and we could look at it and say, it has a, an aspect of its own beauty, but it's foggy. But the clouds are low, and they're coming in, and it's dark. But yet, even though we could look at it in its own, its own beauty, and we could be um, tricked into thinking that that was as good as it got, when anyone that's ever been there knows it gets better when the sun shines. But I don't want to just take it this way as the fog of war, because the fog of war is, by definition, is an uncertainty in situational awareness. Experienced by participants in military operations. Now, I want to say this, and I'm not going to preach as I did about a month ago on the greatest task force in history, but we are in a military operation. We're in a part of the Lord's army. 
Amen. And we're fighting a battle each and every day. There's an enemy and we're on one side and he's on the other side. Amen. I thank the Lord we're fighting for the right side. We're not, we're not just looking at it saying, well, it's my ideology against his. No, it's truth against evil. It's right against wrong. It's the light against the darkness. Amen. And it's, it's something that's greater than any war that's ever taken place in history because it is the greatest battle that has ever been fought. And it's fought not with flesh and carnal things, but we war against principalities, against powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. And this battle is taking place in our minds. And it says that the fog of war is an uncertainty in situational awareness. In other words, you become uncertain of what the situation is. or You're not able to become fully aware. And it says that, that, that the term seeks to capture the uncertainty regarding one's own capability or the adversary's capability and the adversary's intent during an engagement, an operation, or a campaign. I would like to just take directly to the scripture in Revelations chapter 9. If you pull that up, Brother Mark and Brother Ed used this a while ago, but I want to use it again today. And in Revelations chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and unto him was given the key of the bottomless pit. So right away we can look at this, this scripture and we can begin to understand there's an intent behind it. There's a purpose. There's something happening. It's not just happen chance. And we know and we can see it by Scripture exactly what the intent is. Because in the next verse, it goes down in verse 2. And it says it this way. It says, and he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit. And as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit, and there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power. As the scorpions of the earth have power. Amen. Now I want to just take this scripture in a very simple way as to lay a foundation tonight. And I want to say there, there is a particular intent to the releasing of demons from the bottomless pit. We can look in the scripture and we can see it as, well, the, 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 something that says locusts, that can't be good. Something that's given power of scorpions, that can't be good. And we can read it that way, but often in reality, it's not that cut and dry. It's not that easy to just identify it because when he first opened it, what first came out was a smoke that arose, a fog that began to come forth, that began to cloud the minds of the people. So it became harder to tell what was the evil. It became harder to be aware of the situation, become aware of what exactly was going on and the intent of these evil, de evil demons that were coming out to afflict you and eventually to afflict the children of Israel, 144,000, but they had a purpose. But in order to fulfill their purpose, they began to throw up a smoke screen, as it were, and it became out in a way of flatteries. In a way of entertainments, in a way of that they could get into your mind through Hollywood and through devices and through uh, other avenues that it would become a wearing down of our boundaries and of our borders until they could easily creep in. As I said, to the naked eye or the carnal understanding, you don't look at them as scorpions and locusts. You don't look at them in this way. You see them as flatteries. You see them as, as luxuries. You see them as, as nice things or time wasters or relaxations. But they're all for an intent, for a purpose to harm, to destroy. 
See, see, but all of the world, all that is of the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And he says in John, he says, and none of these are of the Father. In other words, if this is the motive and the objective, if this is the thing that is being sought, if this is what is being portrayed to you, it's not from God. No matter how spiritual it may come, if it's bolstered by that motive and that objective, it didn't come from God. The Antichrist does not come as a blatant saying, oh, by the way, I'm the Antichrist. We know that and we're aware of that today. We've been very aware of that situation, but I'll say we need to keep that situational awareness when we're in the heat of battle and the fog of war begins to creep in and the lines begin to become blurred and we can't exactly see right and wrong and it seems like there's a gray area. You need to be focused in on what is the right motive? What is the right objective? Am I pleasing to the Lord because there's these things that are coming to cloud my mind and cloud my judgment so that I would easily make a mistake? So that I would easily walk in the wrong way thinking I was doing right? I want to bring up a story from the Old Testament, which is a phenomenal story that we all know very well, and it's the story of Naaman, found in 2 Kings in chapter 5, and verse 1 would read it this way. It says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. Now hold on a second here. This is a captain of Syria, but the Lord had put out his spirit upon him and given them deliverance by him. It wasn't that the devil gave him deliverance, but God did it. God lifted him up for this purpose. But he was also a mighty man in valor, and he was a leper. Oh, my. But the very next verse seems inserted into such a grand story. But the very next verse says, And the Syrians had gone out by companies, and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Now this almost seems slightly irrelevant to the entire story of that they went out in companies and brought away captives out of the land of Israel. In other words, the borders had become blurred to them. It didn't, become, it didn't seem like such a big deal. Why, why wouldn't the king of Israel raise up and build an army and, and, and begin to fortify his borders? But these enemies of Israel had been stealing into Israel in, under the guise of peace. They were two nations that were technically at peace. Technically, there really wasn't a battle going on. I want to say this thing. If you're not fighting a battle, something's wrong. Because we're still in this flesh. If the enemy ain't fighting you, the chances are you've just laid down and let them roll over. It's true. As soon as you get baptized, I always like to tell young men and young sisters this. Congratulations, you've painted a target on your back. They say, but I made a decision for the Lord. Yeah, and that's the most wonderful decision you could make is to serve the Lord all the days of your life. But I want to tell you, I'm praying for you now. Because now the devil wants to do everything he can to take that public confession and tear it down and tarnish it. 
Amen. And it's a public confession, not a private confession. It's public before the people. You're saying, listen, I've decided to follow Jesus. And it's not just public before people. It's public before the enemy. Trust me, he's always in attendance at baptismal services. He wants to see and get the best picture he can. Are you trying to scare us away from being baptized? No, I want to make sure you're serious about it. How to make sure you're real. It's not to be approached lightly. It's to be approached very seriously. Because it makes you, it puts you in line. It makes you candidate to receive the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. See, they'd come under the guise of peace. And the king and the leadership at the time of Israel had all but fallen asleep. To become, they'd become weary of war. And they were unable to protect their own borders. So the Syrians could just send out little companies. He didn't have to have a full frontal attack. He said, oh, Brother Andrew, it's really not that big of a deal. It's just a small thing here. It's just a small thing there. I don't have cancer. It's just a tiny little thing. It's an encroachment on your inheritance. It's an attack on your borders. I said, we ought not to just sit down and say, listen, I'm waiting for the big battle. I'm waiting for the big one. I'm waiting for everything to come against me. Listen, if everything comes against you, what happened when everything came against them? What did they do? Nothing. Because the entire Syrian army eventually said, hey, we're going to go get this Elisha guy. They walked into Israel, surrounded one of their cities, and the king had no idea. He was sitting in Samaria going, Elisha, why'd you bring them here? Just, just clearly, there's a fog of war, there's a smoke that's gone before, a complete screen where the enemy's robbing his borders, taking his people, taking this captive, taking that one captive. I'm spending time on this for a reason. And they're doing all these things, and the whole time, they don't even know what's going on. They're not even aware that their, their inheritance that God has given them is being taken away, chiseled away, slowly by slow, little by little, just a little bit here and a little bit there, saying, oh, it's not really that big of a deal. It's the far out town of Damascus. Don't worry about it. It's just Dothan. Don't worry about it. It's just this city. Don't worry about it. But to God, all of it was within the borders. It seemed like minor inconveniences. But my, they just put up with it on a daily basis. We know the story how God used it to bring glory to himself through a little girl. And humble the king of Israel. But, but why, why did it ever come to this? How often we allow the enemy to conduct these things. Little raiding parties. Steal away our daily victory. You say, well, he'll let you have it. Yep, you got saved. Yep, you got baptized. Yep, well, you had an experience. But every day, he gets you in defeat. And you walk for weeks, day after day, constantly not overcoming. But you have to go back and remind yourself of a tie post, and a tie post is good. You have to go back and remind yourself of this, say, but God gave me victory there. But he's the same God. It doesn't mean you've got to keep pointing back, but you can say, because he did that, he's able to give me victory today. And he's able to give me victory tomorrow. And I don't have to worry about these little companies, but it's time we set up some ambushes for the enemy. Instead of just letting him come in unattested, unattested over and over again, set up some ambushes and say, we're ready for him this time. He's going to want to bring a bigger army next time. 
He's learned his tactics. We don't want to have the fog of war where we become unaware of the adversary's capabilities. Because he's learned tactics over 6,000 years. He knows. He can read the book of Judges just like you. He knows that he sent in a thousand Philistines and Samson slew him with a jawbone. He knows he sent in 600 and a man named Shamgar with nothing but an ox go, piece of wood with a brass ball on the end, took it and slew 600 of them. He knows what God's people are capable of. He's aware of our capabilities. He's aware that he can't defeat us in great numbers. He's aware he can't do that, but however, if he can chisel away. If he could just chisel away to get at our weak spots eventually. If he could eventually lull us into a sleep so he could come in and surround our cities. Take away the very thing that is our joy, that is our pride, that is all that we have. He wanted to take away the prophet. There was a prophet in the land and he came and surrounded the city and desiring to take away the word of God for that day. It's exactly what he wants to do in your life. He wants to chisel away little by little until he can finally unattended surround the very word of God that's been made real to you and begin to convince you it's not real. Oh my. Let me say it just very, very bluntly today. Would that be all right? This is the way the Lord laid it on my heart, and I really would have liked to preach something real simple. As I did on Friday, we were just over at Brother Simon's sister Promila's, and we just took a little time on the, what God did for us at Calvary and the love of God. And, but this is the truth. This is the day we're living in. We need to be aware of the tactics of the enemy. We need to be cautious that we don't get caught up in a fog of war and allow that smoke that came out of the bottomless pit to, to blind us and, and fog our minds to the point where we can't fight the enemy anymore. Listen, I, I just watched a video the other day. Brother Ed, you were talking about a little bit this morning, but I watched a video the other day of a, of a church that, my, they, just, they were just worshiping. They were, the presence of God was too great in the church. They came out in front, and there was people just hands raised, and they were falling over, and they walked back in the church, and the worship team was just laying on the floor, and it looked like just a outpouring of God. Every woman in the church, just great big low-cut shirts, tight as skinny as pants, makeup covered all over the place, and the guys all got their ball caps on, pulled down low and everything, and I just went, oh, God. The fog of war. The smoke has come out till they think, I'm worshiping God. But yet the Spirit hasn't changed a single life. Why do ministers bless such evil spirits so openly today? I'll say it this way, and I'll pick on one very particular one because it's a very private one. Pornography does not start watching horrible videos. It begins by looking at the daily exposure of what walks the streets of this world and not having the unction to turn your head, not having the unction to repent for what you've looked at, not having the unction to say, Lord, I'm sorry, I didn't even want to see that at all. That's where it begins. 
It didn't start on a, on a computer in your bedroom. It didn't start on a little device somewhere that you started to going down some horrible path. But it was a prevision given that you begin to allow permission to say, yeah, I like that thought and I'd like to dwell on it a little while. And you begin to make it deeper and deeper. And the perversion of gender today, it didn't start with where it's at today. It started with a little something, a little fogging of the mind till the lines became blurred and it became something till now we're dealing with it in message churches. Why? Because the smoke has come in and so clouded it till we don't even know where the borders are anymore. Lord have mercy on us. It's the reproach of Egypt. It's the reproach of the world. I want to get into this in a minute because when it seems like I just can't stand up anymore, I want to encourage you when it seems like you just can't overcome in your daily life, like it's just too much for you. Nobody knows what you're going through. We've all had these thoughts. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody understands the battle that I'm facing. Nobody's gone to the depths that I've gone. Nobody understands where I'm at. And you begin to get it and everything begins to become strange looks. When you get so down on yourself and the enemy begins to put you in such a place to to when a coworker looks at you, you're like, oh, they think I'm weird. When a schoolmate looks at you immediately, you think it's a reproach. And when someone else, they don't even say anything. They just looked at you. And maybe they're admiring you and you stand for God, but because you've got in such a place of the a fog of war, till finally you've just become where everybody's against me. The world takes that and diagnoses it as anxiety and in a further state of depression. Where it becomes that way where the enemy begins to convince you of a state of mind. Why? Because he's encroaching on the borders. It didn't start. He didn't just immediately crush you and convince you you're not a Christian. He just wanted a little bit. And then he wanted a little bit more. And then he wanted just the next step and the next step. But I want to encourage you tonight that there is a God that is able to overcome in your life and take care of you every step of the way because the footsteps of the righteous are ordered of the Lord. Hallelujah. It's not wished upon by the Lord. He orders them. He puts them exactly where he wants them to be. So you are where you are by the grace of God. You might wake up and just say, I'm tired of the constant fight. Tired of going to church and being looked down on. But if I'm honest with you, there ain't nobody looking down on you. But the devil's put you in that state of mind. He's put you in there to put that thought in there. When somebody looks at you in church, you're like, they don't like me. I knew Brother Andrew had something against me. Because when he was preaching, he looked right at me. Hey. You're not called to survive. You're called to overcome. He didn't look at it and say, to them that survive in Laodicea, will I grant to sit with me? No, to them that overcome. 
I'm not going to just give them a place in the city. I want them right by my side. I want them on my throne with me because I'm coming down to take their place. But sometimes we need to change our perspective to move towards victory. We need to change the way we are looking at things and stop looking through the eyes of the enemy and start looking through the eyes of Almighty God. Well, the Bible says, and convinced and then concerned, he says, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure of Egypt. Therefore, he forsook a throne, took his choice with the poor, ignorant, illiterate slaves. Why? He esteemed the riches of Christ greater treasures, eternal life, than to have the glory of this world at that time. Have all the glory they want. But what God wants today is men and women who isn't interested in great big fineries and all these other things and building a million more and some organization. But somebody that will take the simple word of God and preach it with all that's in them. Hallelujah. That's exactly what God wants. He's not interested we have a big program. Why don't we have more programs, program, program? We need to get out and do this, go to that. We are interested in what God is interested in. She, the bride, has the word of the Lord, and thus saith the Lord, and she knows what he wants done with it. It's to preach it like he always did in the book of Acts. So there'll be another book of Acts written behind her. Because it's the same Spirit of God again that begin coming forth in the church, in the body, in the bride. Begin to manifest the same works again. How are you going to do it, Brother Andrew? Preach the Word. Yeah. He says, wait on God. He says, preach the simple Word of God. Preach it with all that's in them. And wait on God for the power of God to manifest Himself. And show himself the same God that he ever was. Hallelujah. That's what God's waiting for. To get a hold of somebody in that way. I believe he's got a hold of at least one here. And I believe more in the congregation tonight. To be able to say I'm interested in waiting on God. So that he can manifest himself. Just listening to it on the way here to a message. Brother Branham says to a man in the back. He's having discernments going on. And he just points out a man in the back. He says the big man right back there in the back. He says quit pressing. Just relax. Let God move. But, oh, Lord, I needed that. I hear that on the way here. Stop trying to press. Just relax. Let God move. Let him move. Just keep your life sanctified, pure, and holy. Keep your mind stayed on God and off the things of the world. Allow him to move in your life. Oh, amen. He says, if Shamgar had waited till he'd learned all the creeds and things... That's all he'd been able to meet the Philistines with. But he never waited. That's a different kind of waiting. Isaiah 40 says, wait upon the Lord. And they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Amen. They that wait upon the Lord. But this was a different waiting. We wait on the Lord, not on us to get our degrees and our our revelations just perfectly straight and perfectly in line until we got all our doctrines, all our everything just going. So we can stand before Brother Andrew and Brother Ed and we can just tell them all that the Word says. We don't look for that. We want your life right with God. And then wait on Him. And when He moves, you move. Amen. Amen. 
Oh my, let me just stop for a minute, lay some principles out. Brother, Brother Dwayne, there's two objects on the desk in the back that are completely out of place. Would you bring them up here, please? Thank you. I want to make a statement here, and I want you to listen closely. Perfection is where to come to perfection. Perfection is steeped in the depths of relationship. Perfection is steeped in the depths of relationship. I'm using this word very carefully. The steeping of relationship is, in, is the imparting of revelation that changes you into the image of the one that you've received. It's like to, to, to steep something, by definition, to steep something. Has anyone ever steeped tea or coffee or brewed coffee, I guess you'd call it, but it's something where there's two dissimilar substances often in two different states that become so engaged, thank you, with one another. Hallelujah. thought I'd have some coffee up here. Is that all right? But, 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 but these two substances that become so engaged with one another till they begin to infect the dynamics and the mechanical makeup of the other substance. Or in other words, another way of looking at it would be that to steep something is when one substance is kept in a liquid until the liquid has extracted the essential qualities of the other substance. Well, John, could you give me a hand for a second, would you? I just, I just thought I'd make this. I hope this makes it clear because here I have two cups of coffee. Now, these are nice mugs, by the way. International Convention, 1988. Thank you to Sister Janet for the instant coffee. What's in the mugs there? Can you take a look at it? Here. Looks like coffee. Looks like coffee? It looks like coffee. Does it smell like coffee? Probably. Just give it a smell. That's okay. Yeah. It smells like instant coffee, right? I mean, it's not the greatest smell, but <laughs> it is coffee. Now, in this, I've taken hot water and coffee instant coffee, and I've just stirred it in there together. Now, but one of them's different from the other. Because one of them, they both have the right mechanics. They both have instant coffee in them. They both have water. They both were stirred. They both look the same. They both smell almost exactly the same. But one of them's different. One of them, I happen to go outside and get a little bit of mud and put it in there too. Would you like to try which one? Not really. No, don't. I won't let you. But, but thank you. I just wanted to confirm somebody else to confirm with me. I wish I had clear mugs because you could see that they look exactly the same inside. It looks like the exact same thing. It's the exact same mechanics, but the dynamics is in the taste. If I was to get him to taste one of them, I guarantee you he would probably spit one of them out. Because there's mud in it, and it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't even want to taste it myself, so I wouldn't make him. But... but it, it, it's the, the dynamics of it is in the taste. When you steep something, if you've ever brewed coffee, and I got Brother John to do it because he's a bit of a coffee connoisseur, and he, he loves to make his coffee just the right way, or at least he knows how to make it just the right way, though he's not as picky as some people. God bless you, Brother John. But he, he's, he's gone through the science of it, and you can make a certain cup of coffee, or you can brew a certain way of tea. You can have your temperature just to the right temperature. And you grind the beans just to the right grind, and you put them in, and you do like pour-over style, and you pour it over just right at the right 
the right amount going through at the right time, not too fast, not too slow, just right to get just the right dynamics. If you get the mechanics wrong, the dynamics won't come out right. But, but, but in all of these, we could look at it, and you could just look at it from the carnal's perspective and say, it looks right. But if you were to taste it, you would taste, it don't taste right. Something's wrong with one of these cups. One of them's definitely instant coffee, but the other one, something's off about it. Something's wrong with it. Something has a different flavor to it, a different dynamic behind it. And, 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 and I want to just take that and we're going to jump right into something else and come right back to this. So just stay with me for a moment. I'm, I want to make this extremely clear. Because when, when in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, we know the scripture well. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared before Abraham and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. So he begins to say, have a relationship with me and be thou perfect. Walk before me. Have... You, in order to walk with God, you, excuse me, to walk with someone, you have to have a relationship with that individual. Walk with me. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Then you have fellowship one with another. And he says in, in, in Genesis 5 and 22, he says, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years old. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So here's another one. This is our type that he has a, 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 a relationship with God, that he walked with God. He had a certain demeanor about him. There was a certain mechanic. There was a certain dynamic that went with it. But it was more than just the, the mechanics looked right. I didn't realize how close this was to this morning's service. But it wasn't just all light on the outside. There was light on the inside. You can have all the mechanics right, and you can have everything on the outside. Just look, just so. But if there's something on the inside that isn't right, and you're under a fog, and under a smoke, and under something that you can't seem to make the right decision, it'll end sooner or later. Because as we read about it in 1 John chapter 1, or chapter 2, sorry, where he says, And they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, there would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. In other words, there was something on the inside that though they were with us and they looked like us, it had to be made manifest what they really were. Because they really weren't what they were showing on the outside. Hallelujah. Even though you can look at it and say they both got the same mug. They both say International Convention, 1988. They both look like coffee. They both smell like coffee. But one of them's full of dirt. Says it, let's, let's turn to Job. I'll take this down so people aren't distracted thinking about coffee after service. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 and verse 4. So this way it says, and, the sons, and his sons went and feasted 
We know how Job, he was the greatest man, and he was, he was just a, a wonderful man, the greatest of all the men of the East, and his sons went and feasted in their houses. This just was rapturing to me the other day, and I was reading this. They went and feasted in their houses. It wasn't even in Job's house. They went out from under his roof. And he says this, and he says, and then and, and they went out and everyone his way, his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And verse 5 says, and it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all that Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. What an example of a real man of God. This was someone that had a relationship with the Almighty God. That he wasn't looking and saying, well, I wish I had a better relationship with my sons so I could teach them better. But he said, I know a God that can supersede my relationship with my sons and daughters. And he's able to cover them over with the blood if I could just sacrifice on their behalf. Oh my, he said, I sanctify them. And verse 6 says, it says, And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hallelujah. It wasn't another angel that said, Hey, look at that guy. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant? <laughs> Hallelujah. My servant. Not your servant, the servant, his servant, my servant. Have you considered my servant Job? And he says, oh my. He says, there was none like him in all the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Now, we could continue to read the entire book of Job and you would find out it didn't always stay that way. He always eschewed evil. He always feared God. But he didn't always have his sons and daughters. He didn't always have all the sheep. He wasn't always considered the greatest man by those around about him. He actually got quite a reproach that became upon him. As we know the trial of Job that he began to go through, how it took all of his sheep and all his camels and all his donkeys and everything began to go until the house fell on his children while they were in there having a good time together. And the house fell down and it seemed like all was lost. Even his own wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? And his own body, he got right down into the sickest of states, boils all over, sitting on an ash heap. And then his three tormentors, really friends, begin to come and torment him and begin to talk to him and begin to say, why don't you just confess your secret sin? For Job, even though he didn't get a little bit of a fog in his mind, he began to look at it, he began to look at it and say, why, the flowers come and they, they, they rise and they die and they rise again, but what about man? But God began to give him a clear vision. He said, even though I die, even though his, his body goes by the way and these skins are him destroy this flesh, yet in my flesh shall I see God. I know that my Redeemer lives. Something begin to rise above and begin to clear the fog back. Hallelujah. This, this state of Job in chapter 1 was as God began to brag on Job. It wasn't because Job had all the revelation. Because if you read the message, you begin to find out that God began to want to begin to reveal himself to Job in a greater way. That's why he allowed Job to go through this trial. So he could reveal himself in a greater way to Job. 
Hallelujah. But Job had a relationship with God. And this relationship began to steep something in him that wasn't polluted. It was real and it was pure. Hallelujah. So he could steep in Job a more essential quality of Christ. Or he could give him a greater revelation. If you jump down to Job chapter 42, Job chapter 42 and verse 10 says, and the, and, the, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job. Oh my. He'd gone through all these trials. He'd gone through all these things. But he kept his mind on God. He kept his thoughts. He didn't, he didn't fail the Lord. He kept looking to the Lord saying, Lord, I know somehow I haven't done anything wrong. I've searched my whole life. Try the reins of my heart. Do everything you can, Lord. I know I've done what's right in your eyes. I know I have a relationship with you. I don't know why you're hiding yourself from me right now, but I believe there's a purpose. And when God begins to speak to Job, Job doesn't get up and say, where have you been? He falls on his face at the beginning of chapter 42 and he says, oh, God. Without you, I am nothing. And when that happened, then Job turned the captivity, then God turned the captivity of Job. And when he prayed for his friends, also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Oh, this is the way the Lord begins to look at relationship. He begins to look at it in this way. The world looked at it as a reproach. The world looked at the trial as a, as a reproach. They looked at what he was going through and his three friends. He looked, Job, surely you've done something wrong. But God looked at it and said, that's a real man. That's my servant. That's one that won't turn the way. That's one that isn't going after this and after that. As soon as time gets hard, they're gone. Because he really was one of his. Let's go to Joshua chapter 5 before I run out of time. I don't want to hold you too long. Joshua chapter 5, a couple weeks ago, we went into the first part of this. Circumcise yourself. Take a sharp knife. But I want to read a, a further portion of it as the Lord has been dealing with me. And Joshua chapter 5 and verse 7. It says, And their children whom had raised up in their stead, because they had been circumcised down in Egypt, but over the course of 40 years they had wandered in the, in the wilderness, and they had raised up children, and they didn't circumcise them, because the Bible says they didn't even obey the word of the Lord, and God said they wouldn't let them go over into the land that flowed with milk and honey. It says, And their children whom he had raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them by the way. And it came to pass when they had done circumcising all the people that they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole. And I want to just take a step back for a moment because in chapter 1, if you know the book of Joshua, chapter 1, God calls Joshua and begins to promise himself to just saying, as I was with Moses, so will I be with you, and it reiterates the promise of the footsteps. And in chapter 2, there's the meeting of Rahab and the spying out of Jericho, where they meet the two spies and they give her the token. Chapter 3, they cross over the Jordan, and Joshua commands the people to sanctify themselves beforehand. Chapter 4 is a continuation of the testimony being raised up from crossing over. He commands 12 men to take a testimony. So all of these things have taken place. 
Then as chapter 5 begins, he's, they, they take sharp knives and he circumcises the, the young man about 603,550 according to what it's recorded in numbers. I don't know if that's the exact number, but that's as far as I can find in the Bible. That's a lot. But we find now as you go down in, in verse 9, it says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day, they've been out of Egypt for 40 years. But he says, This day have I ruled away the reproach of Egypt from you, from off of you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day, which Gilgal means rolled away. And then as God begins to do it, he says, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Hallelujah. I say, all this time in the wilderness, all the years, 400 years plus in slavery, the murmuring that took place in the wilderness by their parents. And even before they left, there was Pharaoh that looked down on the people of God through carnal eyes and seen mud doppers and slaves. Moses looked out through the same window we know and he counted the reproach. He seen the same thing that Pharaoh saw through his own carnal eyes, but he saw the reproach of it and he said, I'll take that over the riches of Egypt because that is greater to me because that is eternal life. That is God's people. That's what I'm called to. It wasn't that he had a great understanding of it because, you know, in his understanding, it brought about murder. It wasn't his understanding, but it was something in him that identified and said, I'm identified out there with that reproach. But we find in all of it, God looked down through holy eyes and seen that the desire for the things of Egypt, that was the reproach. I want to take this very simply right now. Because God, why wouldn't he let them go over into the promised land? Their parents. They murmured. They complained. They sinned continually before the Lord. They would not obey. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. And God looked at that and said, that is the reproach of Egypt. The world looked at Israel and said, that is a reproach. But God looked at the world and said, that is a reproach. And after he brought him over through the promise, through the, through the Jordan River, and they circumcised themselves, in other words, God says, now that I've sealed you into the promised land, I have removed the reproach of Egypt. I've removed the reproach of the world from off of you. All those things that the world looks at and says, why don't you drink? Why don't you smoke? Why don't you curse? Why don't you carry on with all these things? To them, it's a reproach because to them, it's not fun. But God looks at the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and he says, that is a reproach. And when I came down and saved you, I've removed that reproach from off of you so you don't have to worry about the thoughts that the enemy puts on you trying to bog you down and put you into a place saying, oh, they don't like me, they don't like me. It doesn't matter what they like and don't like. What matters is that God removed that reproach because you're no more of his, you're God's. Hallelujah. Oh, if we just change our perspective. 
just change our perspective, the way we're looking at things. Even the church world looks at it and says, talks about missions and says, oh, did you build a school? Did you educate the people? To them, that's a good thing. But God looks at it and says, that's not what my purpose is. I'm here because I sent my son into the world that whosoever would believe on him should have everlasting life. Not that they'd be educated in English, but they'd have everlasting life. Not that they'd receive some great theology, but that they'd have life and life more abundantly. I came for a purpose and I'm looking for people that are willing to preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. Oh, change our perspective and realize how God views what he views as a reproach. It would cause us to protect and build bulwarks around our borders. It would cause us to bolster our defenses instead of just allowing the devil to just croach in and just take a little here, take a little there. If we change our perspective and begin to look at the way God looks at it and say, Lord, you care. It's a reproach to you when the enemy comes in and takes this and takes that and we do nothing about it. But rather, I want to get on my knees before God. Say, Lord, you gave me this as my inheritance. You gave me my children as my inheritance. You gave them to me, so I'm claiming them. You gave me my peace. You gave me my joy. You gave me my love. And I'm not willing to just let it go to a little raiding party. Oh, my. Give me one more, a few more minutes, will you? Would you? Joshua chapter 7. If you go over in Joshua chapter 6, we find Joshua chapter, at the end of chapter 5, the Lord comes down and gives Joshua the formula of exactly how to fight the battle of Jericho. And the secret was, don't fight it. Let me fight it. <laughs> Hallelujah. Then he takes Jericho and they walk around it seven days and I find it amazing as they're, they're walking around. So it really, it was at least... Three weeks from the time they crossed Jordan to the time Jericho fell down. At least. Because it takes about two weeks to recover from circumcision and it take, took them a week to walk around it. And the Bible says that they waited until they'd all recovered. So there they were. With after all these three, at least three weeks that Rahab had a cord in her window. Three weeks that you had that thing bound there. Every day looking out the window wondering, what are they doing? Why aren't they coming? They promised they were coming. What is going on? Why is this taking so long? What is happening? And people looking at her like, hey, Rahab. She looks up to her, yeah, what's wrong? Hey, you got a rope hanging down. You can take that thing down now. Yeah, it's okay. I put it there. Oh, okay. The next person, hey, Rahab. Something's wrong with your window there. No, it's supposed to be that way. Oh, okay. The next person, hey, Rahab. Three weeks. Every time they begin to walk around, it become a reproach to the world. They look at her, to her, she was saying, this is my salvation. This is everything I've got. It's supposed to be this way. And they begin to call out to her as they begin to get closer and closer to the day. And perhaps they're going to call more ridicule towards her. Hey, you're going to take that silly old cord down. It's beginning to rub on your window. It's been a wreck. Thing. She said, listen, you better come and get in here too. Because if you don't come in here, you're going to be destroyed. Ah, oh, Rahab, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, Rahab, it's gone on three weeks now. It Surely it won't happen. They just wanted to camp by the river. 
Whatever happened with them crossing on dry land, that's just fables now. It's been weeks. They haven't even moved. They're just sitting in their tents doing nothing. Oh, my. But she bore this reproach gladly because she was looking through different eyes now. She was looking through the eyes of God saying, listen, this is so temporal what we got around us here. These walls are so temporary. And the general could say, no, they're so thick. They're so big. We can run chariot races around. Come out and watch the latest chariot race. Come out and watch the latest thing we got going on. Get in the, get in the revelry. Come have a drink. Come have a this. Come have a rouse and a rubble rouse and all these things. Come have a good time with us. She says, no, I got to stay right here. It hasn't happened for three weeks. It won't happen now. It's going to happen. Hallelujah. First time they walked around the walls, as they walked all the way around, the general comes back to her door. Hey, Rahab, they walked all the way around. They couldn't find any weaknesses, so they went back to their camp. Told you so. You know, just sometimes the attitude that I get, you know, after day seven and they came and rescued me, I would have wanted when to go find the corpse of that general just to say, told you so. <laughs> That's just the flesh, maybe. But. Sometimes we want to go find the devil sometimes that was tormenting us for years and years just say, told you I'd overcome you. Yeah. Told you you couldn't beat me after all. Told you you weren't worth it. You took so much, you took this, but I took it back in the end. All these things went on, and we know the story. How, now, I better move on, because the Joshua chapter 7, I want to get to this part here. Joshua chapter 7, we find the story of a man named Achan. All this had happened. And now it comes down to this guy named Achan. Like he just, something in him. As, as he come down, I'm not going to read too much of it, but, but if you read all of chapter 7, you begin to go in, it says, how they come and they sent out, he said, let's just send out two or 3,000 of them and we'll just go out against the smite AI. They're just a small city. They don't got much for defenses. It'll be great. We'll have an easy victory. And you know what? That should have been the case. That should have been because they had the promise of God. That no one would ever be able to touch them and they would be just fine. Everywhere the soles of their feet tread, it was theirs to conquer, to have, and they would be able to go out and there'd be no problem at all. But they go out there and all of a sudden they come running back to Joshua and we find that there's 30 uh, 30, I have it, 36 of them that died. What does Joshua do? He begins to rent his clothes. He gets on his face before the Almighty God. He begins to cry to say, what's wrong? Something's wrong. Something's happened because this ought not to happen because the promise of God was I wouldn't lose a man and now I've lost 36 of them. Something's gone wrong somewhere. The lines have become blurred somewhere in my camp and I need to figure out where it is. But the Bible says he called a seven-day fast and he got on his knees. And as he got on his knees, if you've jumped down to a few more verses later, God looks at him and says, why are you crying to me? What a response. Could you imagine fasting and praying for seven days? And so God just sits him down and says, what are you doing? I told you. Therefore, there's sin in the camp. Don't you see how important the word of God is? 
You can get up and you can fast and you can pray and you can do all kinds of things. And fasting and praying is good. But if your life doesn't line up with the word of God, all the fasting and praying won't do one bit of good because you've got to get sanctified. You've got to get the Lord into you so that way you can have him working through you. You must be born again. Achan had been there. He'd gone through the circumcision just like the rest of them. I want to look into his mind for a moment. He'd seen the glory of God. He'd been in the wilderness for a time. He was a man who was a well-able man to fight, so therefore he'd been in the wilderness with them for at least 20 years. And he'd been around with them, and he'd crossed over Jordan with them. He'd sanctified himself. When Joshua says, sanctify yourself for today, tomorrow you'll see the glory of God, he did that. When they came across, they said, we're going to circumcise. They circumcised, and that was good, and he did that. They went out. He was there seven days. He marched around with everybody else. He was quiet just like everybody else. When it came around to the seventh day, the seventh time around the city, he shouted just like everybody else. He raised up his sword. He clanged it together. He made noise just like everybody else did. He looked exactly like the other cup of coffee, but there was mud in the water. Oh my, when he's seen the pride of life, what was he thinking? I want to say regardless of what he had experienced, that what he had seen had never sunk down deeper than just a form. And when he's seen the pride of life and he's seen something beautiful, what, what was he thinking? That place was cursed. Even Joshua said, the man that rebuilds it, let him be accursed. Oh my, but when he's seen that, He never had complete confidence in God. Perhaps he thought about laying up for the future. Oh, he thought he may have need of this in his future home. (laughs) He was so spiritually minded, I'm sure. I'm positive he wasn't just a rascal going in there. Just, wow, I'm just going to see what I can get. No, but he happened to stumble upon a Babylonian garment, a wedge of gold, and these shekels of silver. And he was so spiritually minded that maybe he looked at it and he kind of walked away. Then he looked again. And he kind of took it and then he looked again. It didn't just start out as something evil and something bad and something horrendous. It started out as just he happened to notice it. And maybe it was half covered under a stone or a board and he just lifted that off and he began to look around. Nobody's watching well, everyone else was over there rejoicing with Rahab. He was over here going, hmm. You know, there's a big land out there. I've got a home over here that I'm going to build. This would help. Think about it. If we just get right into the mind of Achan for a moment. It wasn't that he immediately thought, oh yeah, I'm a bad guy. I'm going to just do something to get God going. No. Nobody will know. Hey, it'll help me in the future. It'll be okay. It's just a little something. The fog of war begin to creep in. The lines begin to get blurred. He began to become unaware of the situation that he was in. He wasn't aware that what he was about to do was about to cost him his life, his family's life, his children's life, his oxen's life, his sheep's life, his tent, everything burned, gone. 
Oh my, he thought this would come in so handy. Oh my, he maybe even thought, and he had the thought that come to his mind, I'll use it for the kingdom of God. After all, I've been sealed in here. Yeah. Oh, how the devil comes in with flatteries. If he had done this with such malicious intent, I am certain he would have repented the moment people died on the raid to Ai before Joshua could even repent. Listen, if he had done it with malicious intent, I'm sure he would have recognized his sin knowing that it was sinful. The moment that that he came back and said 36 died and he would have gone, "Uh uh-oh, that's on me. But somehow, he had so convinced himself that what he had done was okay, that there was a seven-day fast, and he was right there fasting with him. And he was right there going on, oh, Lord, what's the problem? Why did these people die? Maybe they were bad fighters. I don't know what's going on. I don't understand. And then he says, okay, the Lord says, pull aside. We're going to cast lots, and they pull aside the tribe of Judah. And he was not at that point, but he was so convinced that he gets right in there and his children are going, what's going on, Daddy? I don't know. We're doing the best we can. And they come right down to his grandfather's house and he's, hey, I don't know what's going on. Did you boys do anything? It was so private, it was hidden under his tent, or under his blanket. It was in the privacy of his own bedroom. But God was looking at that, saying, that is enough to cause my entire church. Lord, help us. He said, there's no way in the world they'll find out it's me because it wasn't even on his mind because it was so private. There's no way anybody knew about it, but God knew. And God looked down and he called for his dad to come forth. And out of his dad, he said, it's him when he was brought before the arm thumb and flashed and they cast lots. This is the one. And Joshua looked at him and said, you better confess it to me right now. Don't mince words now because we got you now. And what did he do? He said, oh, now it began to struck him. Now it come out. I want to encourage you tonight. Don't wait. Don't wait because he didn't realize the decision that he made back there when nobody saw it. And it seemed so innocent. It was about to cause his entire family's life, his livestock's life, his tent was to be burned. I want to tell you the decisions you're making in the private of your own bedroom is determining the outcome of your soul. This gospel is not a public show. It's a private relationship. And perfection is steeped in the depths of relationship. Real good, a real good drink for the Lord comes forth from a real private, deep relationship with God. Like Enoch when he walked with God in the private of his own room. When he was at work, when he was in his vehicle, no matter where he was. I even put, I got a smartwatch, and I even put on the background a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So maybe that's a little sacrilege. No, I did it for a reason so that every time I do something with my hands, I'd be reminded is what I'm doing. Pleasing. Is what my hands are doing. Are they pleasing to God? Would I be willing to take what I'm doing with my hands and immediately turn around and wash the feet of my Jesus? Or would I have to say, Lord, if they're filthy, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't. Like Achan, where he come, and he come right to that point where he said, this is the time. He realized, oh God, I'm guilty. There was no mercy then. There's mercy right now. But I'm going to tell you, there's coming a day. It could be tonight, it could be tomorrow, it could be 10 years, it could be 100, I don't know. But there's coming a day when mercy will be no longer. And it'll be too late to realize when the church doors are still locked on Sunday morning. Going, it's too late! Oh, praise be to God. Achan had the commandments of God. Why would he do such a silly thing? Such a silly thing. That's what robs us of the blessing of God. Brother Brandon would talk about it. He'd say, listen, if there's one in our midst, there's sin in the camp. we got to get the sin out of the camp. Because if one is in the camp sinning, it's causing others to lose their healing, to lose their blessing. The Spirit of God cannot move freely because someone is doing something in the private of their own bedroom. This is a serious gospel. Listen, this wasn't, the scripture says a couple chapters earlier, if you go read the book of Joshua when you get home, the scripture would say that the, the, the Lord showed himself with Joshua and the people feared Joshua just like they feared Moses. So this wasn't when Joshua called the seven day fast, this wasn't just a, oh, that's just Joshua moment. This wasn't just, a, oh, that's Brother Andrew moment. This wasn't one of those moments. This was a different moment when they recognized, but his mind had become clouded by the fog of war. He lost his awareness that he couldn't do anything here. It wasn't his ability that had brought him that far. He would lost his awareness that he couldn't do anything to bring himself across the river. It wasn't Achan that got himself across the river Jordan. It wasn't Achan that got himself around the wilderness. It wasn't Achan that got himself through and around Jericho and the walls down. It wasn't his shout. It was God that was using the people. It was God that crossed the Jordan. It was God that brought them out of the wilderness. It was God that called them out of Egypt. It was God the whole time. And he lost his situational awareness and began to think, I can do something. Oh, he lost his awareness that none of his ability was needed to conquer the land. None of his ability was needed to build a future home. Just pure, unadulterated faith is what God is looking for. He says, will I find faith when I come? Everything else, the pride of love, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, it was a reproach to God. The Babylonian garment, the shekels of silver, the wedge of gold, it was a reproach to God. How dare you think I need that? I'm the infinite God. 
I prove to you that I would bring you out of Egypt with a strong hand. And I'm here to prove to you that I am going to give you this land. And I will fight for you. How dare you think you and your talent is needed in my kingdom. The only way our talent, our ability is needed is when we can get on our face before God. Like Job did. And say, Lord, I've realized I'm nothing without you. I've realized I can't do anything without you. I can't even get off this ash heap without you. I can never recover from this place I'm in in my mind, this spiritual battle that I'm fighting. I need you. I need God in my life. I need a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I need him. Why don't you just reach out to him tonight and begin to ask him in your own self. Say, Lord, you know what I'm going through. And I need you. I need you in my life. I need you to undertake for me. My ability is nothing in the eyes of an infinite God. If he doesn't use me and I think I'm somebody, he'll raise up another. He's the infinite God. He knows exactly what he's doing. Andrew, is this to beat us down? No, it's to lift us up. To realize because the way up is down. When we get humble enough, when we surrender enough, when we let go and let God have his way, then he can move in our midst. He says, and once more, I'll just read this as we close. The musicians could come. There's where Satan got in to take good all mechanics and no dynamics. Back, all dynamics and no mechanics. See, we've got to put it all together. We've got the power of the Holy Ghost. We've got to come back with the word to feed this machine. Hallelujah. We can't feed it on a creed. It won't burn it. It chokes up the flues. It will not burn it. It hasn't been made. It was made for the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Not just a part of it. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Hallelujah. I'm not just interested in taking a little part of the message here. A little part of the message there. I want all of it. And my prayer is, Lord, help me to live. Help it to live in me. Don't let me try and manufacture it. But let me just feed on it so God can use me. So God can live through me. So God can allow his works to be done in my life. So he could back this up. We ought not to look at one another. Look at the pastor. Why isn't the power of God moving? When that happens, we ought to look at ourselves. Lord, is my life right? Am I the one that's stopping it? Am I the one that's causing this? Am I the one that stopped the Holy Spirit from being able to move freely in our midst? Because I sat in services and wasn't willing. Because I went home at night and just decided to do my own thing. Because I wasn't willing to surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I wasn't willing that no matter what the temptations on my flesh was, I wasn't willing to say no. But the Lord of God, the, the Lord said, don't touch it. Anything, anyone that has the love of the world in them has not 
the love of the Father. That's cut and that's dry. There's no blurred lines. There's no clouded borders in that. Hallelujah. God put men of God in our lives, a pastor. God put Brother Harold in our lives for years to lay a foundation. We're not leaving that foundation now that Brother Harold's gone on. He's laid that through the unction of the Holy Spirit. But we also have an unction of the Holy One. So that we could, uh, by, the, uh, by the knowledge and by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the mind that has wisdom, continue to build on that foundation. Hallelujah. Let's stand to our feet. What if we just sing that simple course? The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. Oh, the greatest thing Speaking of relationship, I want to know you more. I want to know you more. Oh, the greatest thing in all my life is no. Singing all my life is loving you, Lord. Oh, the greatest thing in all my life is loving you. Oh, the greatest thing in all my life is loving you. together with every head bowed every eye closed I want to just as David were writing the Psalms, Psalms chapter 7 he says oh let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end but establish the just for the righteous God trieth the reins, the hearts and reins I want that to be my desire tonight. Lord, let the wickedness cease. Let the ways of the wicked be done with. But Lord, let let the ways of the just, let you try the reins of my heart. Try my heart, oh God. Try the reins thereof. See if there be any evil way, any wicked way in me. 
I wonder tonight if you just want to slip up your hand to the Lord. You just want to say, Lord, I want you to come and try me tonight. I want to know that there's not a single thing in me that would be hindering the moving of the Holy Spirit. I want God in my life from beginning to end. I want Him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and Sunday. I want God to have His way. I want Him to know that I'm His and He is mine. I am my beloved's and He is mine. I don't want to be another one. Oh my. I don't want God to come to me and say, you've had five husbands and the one you're with now ain't it. But I want Him to come and say, you're mine. You're mine, little bride. Well done, good and faithful one. You're mine, little church. God bless you, each one. God bless you. God bless you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father. Lord Jesus, you're here right now, Lord. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't change a bit, Lord. Father, you knew exactly who it was when you told Joshua, while you're laying on your face before me, there's sin in the camp. You could have just told him it's aching, but you said, no, let's give him a chance. Call the people before the Urim Thumb and we'll draw lots and we'll see who it is. Lord, you're such a gracious God. Father, I know tonight you're still a gracious God. Lord, we're all deserving of uh, the worst judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy, by this great love wherewith he loved us, he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Lord, you gave us an unction so that we could have a desire to stand on the truth. So that we could have a desire to seek you with our whole heart. Lord Jesus. Lord, we desire, Lord, if you're moving, Lord Jesus, on any particular individual, Father. Lord, I pray that you just move on our hearts if someone needs to come to the altar, Lord, and just lay it down their lives. Lord, may they do so and feel comfortable. Lord, I believe it was Achan who would have wished he would have gone to an altar one day. He would have wished he would have been there one day. But Lord Jesus, we got an altar today. So Father, I pray that Lord God, you'd move on our hearts as you see fit, Lord. If that's how you desire to move, Lord, I pray you'd move in that way, Lord. But Father, would you sweep over us with your Holy Spirit? I can't do anything, Lord. I'm just a man. But Lord, you are the almighty, infinite God. Your ways are perfect, oh God. Father, we commit each one to you, Lord. Let's raise their hand. Let's made a stand. Let's desire, Lord, that you would move in their hearts. That you would try them, oh God. That you would have the preeminence in Jesus Christ's name. The greatest greatest thing in all my life is serving you Lord let it be said of me have you considered my servant the greatest thing in all my life is serving you I want to serve
Don't be ashamed tonight. Don't be worried about what someone next to you would, would think. I know Aiken sure would have liked to go back a few steps and said, I don't care what anyone else thinks of me. I want to make this right. If you got something you need to make right, I'd encourage you to do it now. Don't wait for another time. Don't wait for another service and say, well, it's not really that important. If you need to come to an altar, if you need to get right, do it now. Don't wait for another time. I would rather just turn around and close the service. I thought about it many times, but God keeps pressing on my heart to say, listen, is there one? Don't wait, young person. Don't sit there and just go, well, these young people's coming in September. There's another time here. There's another time there. No, it's now. God wants to move on our hearts to say, listen, I want to take you further into the promised land. I want to give you more of myself. But are you willing to surrender all that you have, the private life, everything, and the things in the bedroom and say, oh God, I don't want it anymore. Just sing that song. I give myself away so you could use me, Lord. Give myself away. Oh, I give myself away so you can use me. I give myself away. I give myself away so.
myself to you Oh, I give myself away I give myself away So you can use me I give myself away I give myself away so you can use me and take my heart, take my life as a living sacrifice. All my dreams, and all my plans, Lord, I pray. Uh...